So now we're going to continue our series, God Space, as you see on the screen. This is the third message in this series, God Space Part 3, and the title of today's message is, Why Not Us? Why not? Why not us? Why can't God use us? And so please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. One of my favorite stories in the, um, in the Old Testament. I actually leaned over to my son, Jack, during worship last night, my 10-year-old, uh, and I said, uh, Jack, I'm going to be sharing a story tonight from the Old Testament that you've probably never heard, and you're probably really going to like it. It's like, all right. My son, Jack, is like, you know, likes to fight kid. You know, wrestling's a great sport for him. He's just really aggressive and, you know, loves battles and, and war and, and, and fights. And, you know, for a long time, he'd come home from school and it would be like, uh, remember that old Pink Panther show where, like, Cato would attack the, the guy every time he came home from, from work or wherever? Well, it's kind of like that. Like, for, for months, every day, Jack would come home from school. He would just attack me. And... Um, so, in, in that story, we see this, this warrior uh, spirit, this warrior mentality in this story in 1 Samuel chapter 14. With Jonathan, the son of Saul, let's pick up the story in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including... Ahijah and Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know where Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Boses and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, "Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircum the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few." And his armor bearer said to him, "Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul." Then Jonathan said, "Behold, we will cross over to the men and will show ourselves to them." If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. Then both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. After, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison... And even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the zeal, the courage, the passion, and the faith we see in this text. And I pray, Lord, that that same grace would be in us as we consider our mission. Lord, to 
spread the name and fame and spread the aroma of Christ around the world in our generation. So send us out, Lord, as courageous men and women, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith and full of the power of God as we go to whatever garrison you're sending us to for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so here's Jonathan and his armor bearer alone. The, the other uh, men in, in the army uh, who were with Saul didn't even know th- that they were gone. They didn't, didn't even know where they were. So these guys are on their own. And Jonathan knew one thing, that his mission, their mission, was to seek and destroy the enemy. And that was the Philistines in this situation. Philistines, of course, are famous for their champion, Goliath, who David defeated in that great story. There's a few things in this story that I want you to see about Jonathan that I think can encourage us today as we talk about God's space and as we talk about our mission. Uh, just a reminder, this series is based on this book, God's Space by Doug Pollock. And uh, we had some books in the back. I think we've run out, but we have ordered some more and they'll be on the shelf next week if you're interested in picking one of those up. So what I'm doing now is I'm just going to share from this text of Scripture, and then I'll get into a few practical things from the book. A few things about Jonathan. Number one, I want you to see his help, or maybe uh, his helper. So Jonathan began uh, in verse uh, 1 of this text by saying to his armor bearer, Come, let us, let us go over. I want you to notice the strength that Jonathan found in his comrade. He wasn't going to do this alone. He somehow found courage and strength in this young man that was with him, that if he would be willing to do it with him, it would give him uh, strength, it would give him courage, it would give him confidence. And we see this principle of, of Jesus sending his workers out by twos throughout the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10 in the New Testament, it says Jesus sent... He sent them out by twos into the villages. So he sent his disciples out to minister, not alone, but in a team with someone else. In Acts chapter 13, that we looked at a few weeks ago when we were talking about church planting, the Holy Spirit said in Antioch, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have prepared them. And so God sent them out to the Gentile world to start churches in some very hard places, as a twosome. And even in God's original design, God said of Adam, it is not good for a man to be alone. And he made Eve. She was called a helper or a help meet. And the meaning of that word is a completer, that they would work together on the mission that God gave them to manage this world from Eden. And so Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and he says, let us go. Let's go together. Let's do this together. And the armor bearer's response was, I'm with you. I'm in. Let's go. Let's do it. And in some ways, this is a picture of the church working together. Jesus has not called us as individuals. Now, we are grateful that as individuals, we are loved by God and we are saved by God. But like Cody Wilbanks was talking about at the retreat, God doesn't just call you to isolation. He calls you to a family. He calls you into his body. He calls you into his church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church I'm going to, which means called out ones. I'm going to call out and from the nations bring together one new nation, one new family, one new church, one new people. And so Jonathan said, let us. And the armor bearer said, I'm with you, heart and soul. 
Can you say that to your brothers and sisters? Or are you still a little standoffish? Can you look at your brothers and sisters and say, I'm with you heart and soul? Can you say to this church family and the mission that God has given us together, I'm with you heart and soul? There's courage in that. There's encouragement in that. In a sense, the armor bearer's response was, I see that doing this together is important, and I'm willing to invest myself, my gifts, and even my life to complete the mission together. It's that big of a deal. I'm going to put my life on the line with you. We'll be on mission together. I think sometimes when it comes to mission and reaching people for Christ and and ministry, I think sometimes it's easier to be in the bleachers and go, oh, let's leave that to the, you know, to the professionals, to the really talented and the really gifted uh, you know, people in evangelism or mission. Let them do it. But God calls us all out of the bleachers, and he calls us all down onto the field and says, I've got a place for you in my team. I've got a place for you in the game. I've got a place for you in this mission. Does your heart say, I'm with you, heart and soul? I want to find my place in this great harvest of our time. And as it says of David, he fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. I pray that, in a sense, that's the epitaph for all of our lives. That we would, on this mission that Jesus has given us, encourage one another. Pray together. And even go together. You know, in some ways, we need to see one another as part of the team. You know, this church is part of the team to reach the people for Christ in your life that you love and care about and that you're praying for. And so let's build one another up in these things. In Luke chapter 5, Levi, one of the disciples Christ called, who had been a tax collector, decides to have uh, a Levi party. He calls all his friends together, uh, tax collectors and sinners, and some of the religious community that he knew. He calls them together to have a party at his house with Jesus and the current disciples that he had. Bill Hybels, in his book, Just Walk Across the Room, called it a Matthew party. Just, he's like, man, I'm going to get my unsaved friends around my saved friends, and, just, and I'm going to get them around Jesus, and let's see what happens. There's a togetherness in the mission. Let us go over. I want, I want you to see this video. It's a testimony of an atheist that uh, converted to Christ. And there's this one part of this video where you'll see the role that a church community played. Uh, even though this guy's family seemed to know the Lord, uh, the, the church community played a big role in his ultimate conversion to Christ. And I want you to see this video, so check this out. So hardcore atheist for most of 30 years. Spent a lot of time talking people out of faith because statistically and psychologically it was ridiculous. It was all about me even family even friends it was about me i was going to take care of myself and once i took care of myself i could take care of my family and my friends and everything else i walked away from god when i was 12 or 13 uh, just uh, i've put a lot of labels on that over the course of my life but i think really what it was was selfishness and so i walked away and i walked away hard with a, a vision to pursue my identity in my life in a radically different direction I think God made me obsessive-compulsive for a reason, and I tried to be obsessive-compulsive about physical pleasure, and I tried to be obsessive-compulsive about education, and I tried to be obsessive-compulsion about making a ton of money after I got out of school. And I was successful at all those things, but at the end of it, uh, it was still, I, was, I was hollow. 
the next thing that happened was my financial world crashed. It was the most horrifying, powerless feeling you could ever imagine. I've got three people counting on me, and I've just, I've run our finances into the ground with, with no visible hope for how things were going to be. And I found myself sitting on my couch trying to figure out how I was going to keep my house, how, how I was going to pay my bills. It was really, really obvious to me that I wasn't in control went away on a business trip for a week. I came back, I played golf on Saturday. Uh, and Sunday I woke up and I really wanted to hang with my family. I hadn't seen them for a week. Uh, but I was stuck because they were going to church. The only way I was going to spend time with my family is if I went to church with them. So I thought, well, you know, what the heck, how bad can it be? I'll go and hang around with these guys at church. And here was a community, you know, because it wasn't just the guy on the stage, it was the whole community offering a way of life that made sense. Right. Offering a way of life that was impactful, not just on Sundays for an hour, but impactful as far as what I did with my life, how I treated the people around me. It gave me that identity that I had been searching for. And slowly the God peace kind of crept its way in. Uh, and then the next thing I knew I was, uh, I really wanted to sing. And I really wanted to sing and worship with these people, but uh, I couldn't do it unless I really believed in God. And so I had to... Uh, that was that, that next uh, that Lex leverage point that God had with me. And so I decided, yeah, okay, I believe. I'm going to start singing. And then my hand was in the air. I, I know that as long as I can continue to devote myself to, to church and to community and to humility and to, to, to following what, what God demonstrates to us in the Bible, that God will take care of the rest of that. You belong to Christ. He's paid for you, man. He's your, you're His. And he is yours. And that matters all day every day and impacts everything you do. You know, what else could you ask for but a single point of purpose, a, a single passion, a single reason that impacts all of your life? The best part of saying yes to God is the response is a lot of times almost immediate and it's real and it's impactful and it happens inside your heart. I can't tell you what's going to go on for you, but I can tell you that it's going to change the way your days move from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed and it's available now. What a great testimony. And I think a few things you could see in that story. Uh, number one, it was a process for this guy, right? It wasn't just like he had this moment where, you know, his wife finally said it just the right way and pushed just the right button. And, oh, you know, it was a process. You know, number, number two, you could see God's sovereignty in it, right? Like the, the collapse of his finances. Like that was a circumstance that nobody around him, nobody that did an outreach to this guy could manipulate his circumstances in a way where his heart would see his desperate need and that he wasn't in control. So look at how God was involved in his story. And then lastly, just look at the role of the church. Look at the role of the church community. It was a, there was a, a team effort there. there. You know, there was multiple people involved in his coming to Christ. So there's a lot of, a lot of really good things there to see. So Jonathan's help, his armor bearer, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of doing things together. Number two, I want you to see Jonathan's courage. In verse 6, I love how daring Jonathan is. See it in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving <coughs> by many or by few. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Translation, maybe God will do something. I mean, what happens if this goes bad? <laughs> I mean... 
We're talking about people who wanted to kill him. So what I want you to see is that the Lord did not tell them to do this. It wasn't like Jonathan was like, I had a vision from the Lord. Let's go attack the garrison. He's like, I mean, let's go over there. Maybe God will do something. I think Jonathan's attitude was, yeah, the Lord didn't tell us to do it, but also he didn't tell us not to do it. (laughs) They just knew the mission they were on was to defeat the enemy, to defeat the Philistines, and they knew how great their God was. So Jonathan's like, you know what? Let's just give God an opportunity. Man, I love that. And that attitude when it comes to mission and evangelism is something God uses a lot. If you're willing to just give God an opportunity. Just walk across the room and start a conversation. Just make that call. Hey, what's going to happen if I go over there and I sit down next to this guy in the cafeteria and I just say, hey, what's going on in your life? I don't know. Maybe God won't do anything, but maybe he will. Right? Just give the Lord an opportunity. In his book, Just Walk Across the Room, Bill Hybels said, what if you knew that by simply walking across the room and saying hello to someone, you could change that person's life forever. Just a few steps to make an eternal difference. It has nothing to do with methods and everything to do with taking a genuine interest in another human being. All you need, all you need is a heart that's in tune with the Holy Spirit and a willingness to venture out of your circle of comfort into another person's life. Just give God an opportunity. Get out of your circle of comfort. And I want you to look how easily Jonathan's faith was triggered. You know, in verse 12. Like he, he, he sets up this, um, this acid test, I guess, when he says, uh, okay, if we go over there and they say, come up to us, we'll go up, for we know that the Lord has given them into our hand. This will be a sign to us. And in verse 12, it happens. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer once they showed themselves. Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan's response, he says to his armor bearer, let's go, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. It's like how easily his faith was, like how quickly he saw God in this thing. I mean, in some ways you could say that the Philistines just acted predictably. (laughs) Like they acted according to their nature and Jonathan's like, God's in this thing, let's go. I mean, almost be like saying, hey, go stare at that bully over there. And if he looks back at you and says, what are you looking at? Then we'll know that the Lord has given him into our hand. And that's kind of what happened. And they went and a great great victory came. And so I just love his faith. I love his courage. I love his passion. And I love his his total, utter abandonment and commitment to his mission. Let's Let's just give God an opportunity. Um... For uh, years, my wife and I traveled in the music ministry, and, and our, our timeline was, we got married in 1994, and uh, not long after we got married, the first year after we got married, we started a music ministry called Remnant, and it was a very evangelistic-focused music ministry. I mean, I would say, we don't want to sing to Christians, we want to go sing to uh, unbelievers. So we were well-connected with campus ministries at that time, and, and we sort of came up with this plan to present ourselves to uh, college campuses as a resource. 
uh, campus ministries as a resource to, to do evangelism. And we said, we'll come and we'll set up our sound system right in, in a very high traffic location on your campus. And we'll just start singing about Jesus and talking about Jesus. And, and um, we went to this one campus during those days in um, York, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was a good outreach. And uh, the students, you know, got involved. And, and I have something in my right eye that just won't go away. Um, and the, the whole time I'm there, they are, um, they're talking about this, this guy that they're afraid of on the campus. You know, Darius the Druid. You know, this, this guy who like had, I don't know, he's like, he had like black magic and occultic ties and it was sort of his persona. And, um, he, um, they just kept talking about him and how scared they were of him. And, um, they wouldn't stop talking about him. They're like, oh, Darius the Druid, you know, he was at the outreach and he was just watching from a distance and, you know, he's probably cursing us. And I, I just got tired of, of the fear that they had as they were talking about this guy. So eventually I'm like, anybody know where he lives? Yeah, he's in, he's in the dorm on the south side. You know what floor? Yeah, the second floor. All right, let's go meet Darius the Druid. What, are you crazy? <laughs> no, no, you've dehumanized this guy. And I bet he's not as scary as you think he is. Will, will one of you come with me and we'll go meet Darius the Druid? I'll, I guess I'll go. You don't even have to say anything. Just be a silent partner and pray for me. And let's just go and meet him. All right, fine. So we went over to the south side dorm. We went up on the floor where he's at. There is, there's his door and it's got like occultic symbols and all this stuff on it. And Whoa, come in. Uh, Darius? Yeah. Darius the Druid? Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, I'm, I'm the guy that was out in the campus just uh, singing about Jesus today. What are you doing here? I just wanted to meet you because you're apparently a pretty popular guy. <laughs> and I said, uh, it, it seems like you have a hostility toward the Christian faith. And I, I just, I'm not here to convert you. I'm just here to find out why. And we had this amazing conversation for like an hour about the hurts that he had. Uh, in, in his experiences with the church. And um, the other Christian was sitting there with me amazed that this guy was not this, you know, terrifying, you know, he's going to like sacrifice a goat, you know, right in front of him <laughs> in his room. Um, we just had a conversation that I hope moved Darius toward, toward the Lord as I showed grace to this guy. Uh, you know, my attitude has always been, let's just give God an opportunity. That's what this church is. That's what Clarksville is going to be. And so we see that in Jonathan. Let's go over there. Maybe the Lord will do something. So who do we reach out to? A couple thoughts. Number one, people you know. Number two, people you used to know. And number three, maybe people you'd like to know. I'd like to know an eye doctor to help me get this thing out of my eye. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, I think Bill Hybels called it strategic consumerism. The idea that, hey, you've got to be out in the community anyway. So why don't you be out in the community strategically for Jesus, right? You've got to get your hair cut anyway. So why don't you pick somebody that you can reach out to um, for Christ? Uh, matter of fact, that's, that's how uh, I met Mel Reed, who's our neighbor now. Um, I said, I want, to, I want to start getting my hair cut in the community. And I want to meet somebody for Jesus. And the Reeds became good friends and... And, uh, you know, we've, we've encouraged them a lot in their faith and, and they, you know, they seem to have a genuine faith. And it's just been, it's been awesome to see how the Lord's used that relationship that began with me going to get a haircut. 
Uh, Heidi, uh, when we lived in northern New York, um, picked a cashier at the local grocery store who worked a certain shift. Heidi would purposely go when she was working and get in that line to talk with Stephanie, this young woman. And over time, Heidi developed a friendship with Stephanie. Stephanie ended up coming over to our house, and Heidi shared her faith with her. And just this amazing opportunity came just from strategic consumerism. So um, give the Lord an opportunity. Number three observation about Jonathan is his object of faith. His, uh, his faith was not in himself. I'm sure he was a, a well-trained warrior. But if you look at the text, he's not like, hey, we're awesome, so let's go show them our awesomeness. He's like, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. His hope and his trust was not in his military skill or his ability to win a fight. His hope was in the Lord. He's staking this whole thing on the Lord and not himself. He knows the greatness and the power of God at work in the harvest. Jesus called himself the Lord of the harvest. What does that mean? He oversees the harvest. He mobilizes workers into the harvest. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up and send out workers into the harvest. So he moves on the heart of his people to be raised up and go out as workers in the harvest field. And then he works in the harvest by his power. So we move forward in the hope that we are not alone, that our labors are not in vain, and that God can work and is working through our efforts to reach people for Christ. And I found it really curious that most of the early heroes of the missions movement of the 1700s and 1800s, including William Carey, the father of modern missions, there was this great missions movement where thousands and thousands of people eventually started going to the nations. And matter of fact, even from America at the time, there was this thing called the student missions movement where literally young people were sending their belongings to the nations in coffins, willing to go to the nations to preach the gospel of Jesus uh, and understanding that in some of those places they were going, it may cost them their lives. Well, one of the early heroes of the, you might say, the morning star of this movement was William Carey. And I, I found it curious that William Carey and most of the early heroes of the missions movement were Calvinists. Now, I don't know if you know the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, but, you know, Calvinists have a very, very high view of God's sovereignty. And you might say, well, why were they Calvinists? Don't Calvinists believe that God has already chosen to open the eyes of some unto salvation? Well, yes, they do. It's called election in Scripture. You can read about it in Romans 9. But instead of this idea creating a dark and lazy fatalism, William Carey and the early missionaries saw this idea as a motivating factor that if they went out and preached the gospel in the hardest places of the world, that God would use them and use their preaching to bring people to Christ. That God, the Lord of the harvest, would be working by his power in that harvest. Now, God used a lot of Arminians too, so this is, this is not uh, an attempt to uh, criticize anybody. But I found it curious. And one of the stories from William Carey's life was when he was a young man and he began to see the the binding call on the church of Jesus Christ to go to all nations, he, went, he was part of a, a very reformed Calvinistic uh, community and denomination. And so he went before the board and he said, uh, men, he said, we all love the promise in Matthew 28. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Yes, we, we rejoice in God's promises and 
you know, we rejoice in, in God's presence with his people. Yeah, well, it also says, go into all nations and preach the gospel. So I think that command is binding on the church today. We can't claim the accompanying promise and not be willing to obey the accompanying command to go. And one committee member said, Mr. Carey, sit down. You are a young enthusiast. And when God wants to converse with the heathen, he shall do it himself without using you and without using me. Well, that man was half right. God wasn't going to use him. (laughs) But he did use William Carey. And if you look at William Carey's story, he first went to India and he was there for seven years preaching the gospel before he saw a single convert to Christ. What would keep a guy in the midst of that adversity and that hostility and that kind of lack of results, what would keep him there preaching the gospel? It was his belief, his high view of the sovereignty of God, that it was impossible for God not to use his preaching eventually if he was faithful. I mean, what would you think if you were supporting this missionary? You know? Oh, William's been in India for a year. We just got a newsletter. Let's see how he's doing. Uh, well, nobody's saved yet. Been here preaching for a year. No, no results. Uh, we have a church, but it's just me uh, preaching uh, by myself. So anyway, please keep sending your support. Okay, well, I guess it takes time. Another year later. Oh, another, another letter from William. How's he doing? Uh, nobody's saved yet. No, no converts. No fruit at all, actually, uh, on the outside at least. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm enjoying... Join ministry life and please keep sending your support. Three years, four years, five years later. Oh, we got a letter from William. No, 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 no. Nobody's saved yet. No converts, nothing happening. No fruit at all. Me and me alone in my church services. At what point do you go, maybe we should give our money to somebody else? William Carey was faithful. And by the end of his life, He had impacted hundreds of thousands of people for Christ as the gospel went all over India. Churches, schools, hospitals. God used his preaching. But it was his faith, like Jonathan, in God and not himself. It wasn't him going back and saying, well, I must have said it wrong for the first seven years. So maybe if I just preached it different or made it more palatable for the Indian culture, maybe God would use it. This is the gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to preach it. And I believe that God is working in the harvest because he is the Lord of the harvest, not me. So I'm going to go to India and it may be that God will bring about a great victory. And in fact, he did. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people affected for Christ eventually. So Jonathan's object of faith, William Carey's object of faith was the Lord. It was the power of God that gave them confidence. God is able to save to move on hearts in an irresistible way to bring people to himself. Well, can't people resist God? Well, yeah, until God resists their resistance. That God is able to defeat even the unbelief and rebellion that would otherwise keep people from God, that would cause people to reject God a hundred out of a hundred times if left to themselves. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills. God is sovereign. God is powerful. He is our object of faith as we engage in mission. 
as we go to Clarksville, as we continue in the work of the Lord here in Western New York, as we support and send out missionaries all across the world, we have confidence that our mission is not in vain, our work is not in vain, our efforts are not futile, because God is working in the harvest. I want to finish with some practical principles that Doug Pollock shares from God's space. And uh, I'm actually going to do some reading from the part of the book where he shares those principles because he does a really nice job sharing a story that went along with these principles that he encourages us in. And these principles are what he calls how to, outwardly, how to live outwardly focused lives in an inwardly focused world. How to live outwardly focused lives in an inwardly focused world. So there's nine principles. I'm going to go through them pretty quick uh, as he uh, shares this story. Principle number one, go. The Great Commission begins with a two-letter word, go. Listening begins with a heart that's willing to move toward the people in our lives. While I don't frequent bars as a way of life, I have learned that the best spiritual conversations usually occur in places where others feel comfortable. The church, on the other hand, communicates to the world, if you come to us, We'll listen to you in our buildings on our timetable if you use our language and dress and act as we do. The come and see approach of most churches is far from the go and be mentality modeled by the church in the book of Acts. And then the story begins. None of us knew what we were in for that night. Picture this, a white guy in his late 40s, that would be me. A white guy in his mid-60s, that would be the outreach pastor. And an African-American guy in his mid-30s, that would be Anthony. Walked into a country bar called Steppin' Out. On a Friday night, the second after stepping in, I was ready to step out. I was old enough to be the father of most of the clientele. The outreach pastor could have been their grandpa. And Anthony was probably the first and last African-American to set foot in this bar as the town had very few African-Americans in it. You can't imagine three guys more out of their element. Everything within me was screaming to turn around and call it a night so I could be fresh for the next day. Principle number two. Significant spiritual conversations usually occur when you least feel like having them. And he writes, anytime you feel anxious, fearful, uncomfortable, or downright scared to death, there's a good chance that a significant spiritual conversation is waiting for you on the other side of those feelings, if you don't give in to them. In Luke 9, Jesus states that we must lose our lives to find them. Listening requires us to die to ourselves and our agendas. If you're waiting for this to feel natural before you do it, please give up on that notion dominating the conversation, peppering people with too many questions, jumping to negative conclusions and promoting your particular church often feel much more comfortable than natural and natural than spirit-led listening. However, the good news is that the more you die to yourself and listen as God intends, the more God will increase your capacity to care. And the more people sense that you genuinely care, the more they will welcome your invitation into God's space. And the story continues. After sitting down at the bar and ordering soft drinks, we were approached by a couple of pool players who asked us if we wanted to play. Anthony and I said, sure. Being athletes and action staff, we managed quickly to earn some credibility on the pool table by racking up a few wins. Principle number three, God will use all of your experiences to create God space. Common ground is usually the best place to start when attempting to forge a relational connection. You'll find, and then he, go, then he recommends a book. So the story continues. Our time at the pool table allowed us to loosen up as we chatted with our opponents. It didn't take long before they stated the obvious. Hey, we've never seen you guys in here before. You from around here? I told them it was our first time in their town. 
They asked me what we were doing there. I laughed and said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Intrigued, they said they wanted to give it a shot. So I told them that one of the bigger churches downtown had invited me to speak the next day. Then I asked them if they'd be willing to help me out. Principle number four, good questions create great opportunities for listening. The story continues. Several others in the bar overheard our conversation and gathered around. I mentioned that sometimes churches are not very clued in on how they are coming across in a community because they talk more than they listen. I said, you could help me and them by telling us about your experiences with the church. Principle number five, get lost in order to get found. The story continues. The bartender caught wind of our conversation and turned down the music. Pretty soon, everyone had pulled up a chair around the pool table as, one by one, these people began to share their stories about how they'd been wounded by the church in one way or another. The bartender said she stopped going to church after she was told that her miscarriage was a result of the sin in her life. Another person said that he used to teach Sunday school but stopped because the church was always asking for more money. For 30 minutes, we listened reflectively as these people who had been strangers an hour before shared their true hearts with us. And so what he means by getting lost is you don't manipulate the conversation. You let other people control the conversation. You just listen and you engage them and be willing to uh, be out of your comfort zone, even in the conversation itself, in order to get to their hearts. Principle number six, validate before moving on. Always verify what you thought you heard by reflecting back the thoughts and feelings of the people you're listening to. Reflective listening can be a powerful device to help you hear what people are really saying. And then he gives some suggestions. For example, so if I'm hearing you right, and then briefly paraphrase the feelings and ideas you thought you heard. Let me make sure I'm tracking with you, and then briefly paraphrase the feelings and ideas you thought you heard. Or what you really want me to grasp is that and then again, briefly paraphrase. And he gives a number of other suggestions that might be helpful. The story continues. The youngest person in the bar saved the best for last. She made everyone promise not to tell anyone what she was about to divulge. Then she said that her dad, who was the owner of the bar, used to be a pastor. He had left the ministry when the church he had been a part of split. No one at the bar had been aware that their drinking buddy, the bar owner was at one time a man of the cloth. After everyone picked their jaws up off the floor, this young lady proceeded to shock Anthony and me by saying, you know, I've asked a lot of people this question, but no one has been able to answer it. Could you guys tell me if it's possible to know for sure that if you died, you would go to heaven? Principle number seven. When God's space is created, be prepared for people to share their deepest hearts. 45 minutes had elapsed, before the spirit-led listening that Anthony and I had done paved the way for this question. For a moment, we looked like two deer caught in the headlights. I think we were initially blown away that she was asking this question in a bar on a Friday night to two guys she had just met. After recovering, we answered her question. This prompted a divine dialogue that went on for another half hour. Questions about sin, hypocrisy, forgiveness, and salvation started to fly around. Principle number eight, when you're invited to speak, be brief. Divine dialogue happens when we continue to keep the spotlight on others and what they want to talk about. Meaningful spiritual conversations happen when we accept where people are in their relationship to God, even if we'd like them to be somewhere else. We walked into that bar as strangers, but we left feeling like, sojour 
fellow sojourners who had the privilege of telling spiritually thirsty people where they could find a drink that would truly satisfy them. We had, in fact, listened our way into a spiritual conversation. God's space had been created. We were invited back the next night for karaoke. We had become the friends of sinners. Final principle number nine. One way to tell you've truly connected heart to heart is if you're welcomed back. Many theologians call the book of James a book on practical religion. It should be no surprise then that in James 1.19, all Christ followers are urged to be quick to listen and slow to speak, just as we were in that bar. Imagine what would happen if all Christians showed up in the culture with fewer words and with ears eager to listen. I think we would discover what doctors today have known for a long time, thanks to a young French physician named René Lanik. In 1816, Dr. Lanik fashioned a cylinder from a sheet of paper and used it to examine a patient. He discovered that internal sounds could be isolated and amplified through a tube, making examinations less intrusive and easier to interpret. This discovery paved the way for the modern-day version of the stethoscope. Doctors use this instrument because they've learned that if they listen well, the patient's body will tell the doctor how to be an instrument of healing. And then he finishes, I hope you see the implications for the people in your life who need spiritual healing. If you're willing to take the initiative and listen, both to the people around you and to the Holy Spirit, I don't think you'll ever wonder again how to start spiritual conversations. Amen. I want to finish with a, with a story from my own life to encourage you. Uh, I've been to Turkey three times. Um, we went with a ministry called Turkic Asian Creative Outreach. Taco. They, they need to get a new name, but um, their, their ministry is to set up multi-city tours for arts-based ministries, whether it's um, you know music or uh, drama or dance, and, and they set up multi-city tours in these different venues, and you use that to, to share your faith. And so I, I've done that three times with, uh, with Taco, and um, on the last trip, we had an interpreter who was assigned to our team the whole trip named Camille. He was a Turkish man, a professional translator. And, you know, after getting to know him a little bit, about halfway through the tour, uh, we're, we're eating dinner one night, and I said, uh, Camille, how did you come to Christ? Not a lot of Christians in Turkey, at least at the time we were there. I think a nation of uh, 70 million people, and at the time there was about 5,000 Christians. He was one of them. And I asked him how he came to Christ. He said, oh, I'd be glad to share. And he talked about how he grew up in a Muslim family, as most people in Turkey do. And he said, but... God was presented as distant and mean. And he said, I knew in my heart that there is a God, but he could not be who they were telling me he was. So I rejected the God of Islam. And I became a wanderer. I went to college to become a professional translator. And then I began to work. And he said, one day, I was translating for some European businessmen down in Antalya, which is a Mediterranean coastal city, tourist city. And he said, I had a break during my work, and I went out into the Mediterranean Sea, but I went out at night, <clears throat> and I was swimming in the, in the sea. And he said, I came up out of the water, and God's creation preached to me that he is real. And I saw the stars and the moon, and it was a clear night. And he said, I was overwhelmed with creation. 
And so I prayed a prayer. I said, God, I know you are real, but I don't know who you are. Show me the way and I will follow you. Six months later, he said I was translating for some American businessmen who had come over to do business in Turkey. We were in a city with a small church and they asked me if I'd come and I said, if you pay me, I'll go anywhere. <laughs> so he said I went to church with them and he said I was, I was shocked. I saw several amazing things. First, I saw joy in a religious building, something I'd never seen before. In my experience, religion was cold and mean and frightening, but there was joy. Secondly, I saw people that were sure that they were saved. Something a Muslim is not guaranteed ever is salvation. We are taught, he said, that even if you obey the Quran perfectly, the letter of the law from beginning to end, God still may choose to send you to hell on judgment day if he chooses to do so. There is no assurance of salvation in Islam. And he said, but I saw people who were certain they had an assurance of salvation that I wanted. He said, finally, I saw people calling him father, something a Muslim would not do. That is blasphemous to a Muslim. But here these people had a family relationship with God. He said, and I observed all this. I was deeply moved. And he said, the Holy Spirit. He goes, now I know it was the Holy Spirit who spoke to my heart. Camille, do you remember the prayer that you prayed six months ago in the Mediterranean Sea? Today, I am answering that prayer. God, I don't know who you are. Show me the way and I will follow you. He said, I saw that day. Jesus is the way. And I have followed him since. And at times with great persecution. But he loves Jesus with all his heart. And his faith was infectious and contagious. And you know, I came home from that trip and I, I remember thinking about that story a lot. And I thought, boy, I wonder how many more people like Camille that there are in Turkey, in Uganda, in China, in Kazakhstan, the nations that we support here. I wonder how many people there are like Camille in Avon, in Livonia, in Kalmum. I wonder if there's some people maybe who cried out in their pain, in their confusion, on their journey. I know you're real, but I don't know who you are. Show me the way and I will follow you. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up and send out workers into his harvest field. How do we respond? In Isaiah chapter 6, he gave us a great response. It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Look at the total abandonment he has to the call here. No conditions on that response. It wasn't like, uh, hang on, could you clarify a little bit? Where exactly and what exactly are you asking said person to do? No, he's just like, I've seen the heart of my father. I've seen the heart of God. And I want to be available for whatever he wants to do. And he just goes, how about me? Have you considered me? Here am I. Send me. That's the response. Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we, we hear the same call today. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go to the Camille's? 
Lord, who will go to the young woman in the bar? Like we read in this story. Who will go? To the lost, to the searching, to the hurting, to the sinner in our community, in our lives. Give us help. Give us courage. Give us faith that we would go and join you in your great mission to bring the light of the gospel to a dark world. We pray, Lord, Lord, I pray right now that because of our gatherings here over these three weeks as we've been looking at this book, I pray, Lord, that many, many, many people in the days to come would be saved through this service as we go out and put into practice and even, even radically reorient our lives around the mission, Lord, where we have not been missional, we have not been focused. As we refocus our lives and as we say, here am I, send me, send us out, Lord, full of the life of the Spirit, minds and hearts filled and deeply moved by the gospel, filled with your Holy Spirit, with courage and spiritual gifts to go out and engage people for Christ. Help us, Lord, to truly be the friend of sinners, the friend of not yet Christians, the friend of those who don't know you. And Lord, that you'd open the doors for God's space over and over again in the lives of people as we go out. We ask this in Jesus' name.